Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm your host, Emma Graney, and with me today we have opinion page editor Sarah O'Donnell. Hello. We have city columnist Paula Simons with her delightful hat. Hello, Emma Graney. How are you? That's keeping your head warm, I bet. Yeah, yeah it's hiding my hat hair, <laughs> which is a function of wearing the hat. And we have legislative columnist Graham Thompson. And I have hat hair for no apparent reason. <laughs> <laughs> it looks looks normal. Yeah. You know, many Thank you. Ma- many gentlemen of your age Graham are just happy to have the hair so there's an insult in there i think <laughs> no i think it's a compliment you look lovely thank you so this is the i ain't going nowhere edition as you know uh, for weeks now question period has been jammed with questions about serenity the 4-year-old first nations girl who died in horrific circumstances uh, while in government care. That all came to a head this week with demands for the head of Human Services Minister Irfan Sabir, but he has decided he is not going anywhere at all. Also not going anywhere quickly is the Alberta economy, which uh, economists told us this week is going to be less bad next year. Don't write me letters. I know it's grammatically incorrect. It was a quote from an economist. We'll also touch on a rally uh, held last weekend at the Legislative Building. That's nothing to do with going anywhere at all. That's just well, sure, sure, sure it is because they want Rachel Notley to go someplace. Oh, to very go. warm. Yes, very warm and, and or to barred. jail. Mm. Yeah. So let's kick things off. It was it was the biggest topic I think uh, out of the legislature this week. Serenity, the death of Serenity, the questions that have come and followed that, and also as I said, it came to a head this week as the wild rose. The Alberta Party and the PCs all demanded the head of Irfan Sabir. Paula Simons, it was your reporting that broke really this story to begin with, so I want to put this into your hands to start with. What's happened this week? What happened this week was as much a shock to me as anyone else. I've been trying for weeks now to get comment from a cabinet minister about this story, whether that's Kathleen Ganley, the justice minister, Mm -hmm. or Irfan Sabir, the human services minister. No minister ever stepped up to give me comment. So this Wednesday, late in the day, I was contacted uh, by both the Departments of Justice and Human Services and asked if I would like to speak to those two ministers, Kathleen Ganley and Irfan Sabir, as well as to the statutory director of Children's Services and the new chief medical examiner to answer a bunch of my questions. And I was given a short time to speak with them at five o'clock on Wednesday. And in the course of that interview, Irfan Sabir said to me that there had been an unfortunate error in the handling of Serenity's file. And I pressed him, I said, well, what was the unfortunate error? And he said, well, the internal review done by Human Services after her death was delayed in being forwarded to the RCMP. And I said, when was the report finished? And he said, 2015. And I said, when did the RCMP get it? And he said, well, uh, not until recently. And I said, what does that mean, not until recently? At which point, um, uh, Sabir and statutory director uh, Eldon Block said to me that they received, the RCMP received the documents on December 6th, at which point I yelled across the room loudly enough for everyone in the newsroom to hear, yesterday? They got the documents yesterday? 
and I'm, I'm still kind of reeling from this because this is a, a critical internal review that was done into the circumstances around Serenity's uh, placement in this kinship care home where she died uh, or, or where she suffered the injuries that led to her death. She, she died in the stallery. Um, and it would have been a review of the family and the circumstances. Now, typically those reports are forwarded to the RCMP when there is a, a concern about a criminal investigation. Why didn't those documents go to the RCMP? Well, the minister blamed the delegated child welfare authority on the reserve where Serenity had been living and said it was their responsibility to forward that file to the RCMP. Apparently, the RCMP never got that file, and the RCMP only realized that there was something that they, were, that they didn't know about this case uh, when Del Graff, the child and youth advocate, prepared his report. And at that point, uh, this fall, the RCMP came to the government and said, odd, we don't have this report about the death of Serenity, um, which they did not end up receiving until this week. Now, to my intense frustration, uh, in the aftermath of this story, uh, Minister Sabir uh, said to the media, oh, well, Paula Simons has her facts wrong because we actually sent the RCMP this document on November 22nd, but they just couldn't open the attachment, and so that's why they didn't get it until December 6th. Now, that may well be true. Uh, I spoke to the minister and the statutory director of children's services and to the justice minister on Wednesday. They didn't tell me that. Um, I can hardly, I mean, this is information that only they hold. If they don't give it to me, they can hardly cry foul if I don't report it, since that's not what they told me. But yeah. that's not really the point. No, the that's point, not the, the point. point isn't yeah. the, the point isn't the differential between November 22nd and December 6th. The point is the differential between the fact that Serenity R. died in September of 2014. September of 2014, that's the problem. The problem is the lag of more than two years in which the RCMP did not have this information. They did not have the completed autopsy report from the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, and they did not have the internal review com completed by Human Services into this case. And that and was done in 2015, right? Uh, the review was done in 2015. Right. The Chief Medical Examiner's autopsy report was not completed until this fall. Uh, this this story makes me bananas. I mean, we're not just talking about the tragedy that happened when Serenity was placed in a home where there had been serious issues raised about the competence of this home to provide care for her. We're not just talking about the horrific injuries that she presented with in hospital, the fact that she was grotesquely malnourished to the point where she weighed 18 pounds when she'd been of normal weight the year before. We're not just talking about all those failures which happened while the progressive conservatives were in power. Those things happened while Mamute Buller and Heather Klimchuk were the minister. Uh, but since, but since, since Serenity's then, death, every single thing, it seems, that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. Any checks and balances that are supposed to exist after a tragedy like this occurs to find out what happened and to properly investigate it, it seems to have broken down at every conceivable place. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Thank you, Sarah. I had just actually run out of words. <laughs> Which is, I have to say, not a common thing. And and now as this was all happening, um, when your story went online at around 7pm on Wednesday evening, and I was watching a Christmas film at home and having a rum and eggnog with my darling husband in my pajamas, and saw this, this story come out, and I was like, what the heck? And then there started to be a bit of a call for Sabir's resignation because of grotesque mishandling of the file and so I emailed no 
Yes, I emailed the press secretary for the human services minister, didn't get a reply. So I went up to the legislative building, not in my pyjamas, I did get changed, and um, hung out there for, for, I don't know, a couple of hours, I suppose, hanging out. He breezed past me, wouldn't talk to me. Press secretary wouldn't text me back. He wouldn't call me back. He wouldn't email me back. He even walked past me. And they had all those chances in which to explain this timeline that they've since decided was very important that everybody know. But by now... I think that's too late. But also, just quickly, it's important to point out as well, you're capped outside the ante room to the assembly. Mm. And you heard the minister's staff talk to yeah. him about finding another exit yeah. out of the the, the ledge. At yes. to, to, uh, I'm assuming to avoid you. Emma's super scary. <laughs> I'm terrifying. Uh, no, yes, and I didn't know about this Hogwarts passage. And it was, somebody told me about it. It's just only, down the stairs. Well, I didn't, yeah, I didn't think about it. Yeah. She, she, she hasn't even been mag- here six no, no. months. She hasn't it's found the all same the- stairs <laughs> that we used to get them down. Yeah, it didn't <laughs> even occur to me that yeah. they would use that passage because one of the security guards said to me, what? They never use they that never passage. Use that, and I, I said, well, where does it go? Then he said, oh, you know, it comes out near the press gallery in the cafeteria. So then after they've all breezed, run, physically run past me into the little antechamber, and I heard the minister's um, staffers say, you know those stairs? You know the ones at the back? Yeah, they come out near the press gallery and the cafeteria. Yeah, I mean, there's those ones. And I was like, oh, you stop this nonsense. This is at night when there's nobody in the press gallery. Yeah, this was at about, uh, I want to say, they just were about to rise, I suppose. So it was probably around 11 o'clock at night. It was just me just standing there. No, I mean, the the thing is, I want to be very clear here. I've I've been gobsmacked, all the people attacking me on Twitter and Facebook saying, this is my favorite thing. Why didn't you ever write about child welfare issues when the conservatives were in government? <laughs> <laughs> so many articles, people I mean, stop saying that. I mean, I, I have I have published enough uh, articles, editorials, and columns on this subject to rival a royal commission. You could, I mean, we can bind them and publish them. It would make a very thick book. Irfan um, Sabir is not responsible for the 44 years in which the Conservative Party mishandled this file. Irfan Sabir is not responsible for Serenity's placement in this problematic home. That happened when the Conservatives were in power. Irfan Sabir is not responsible for what happened at the time of Serenity's death. He wasn't in government. Irfan Sabir is not responsible for the chaos in in the office of the chief medical examiner. First of all, that's a justice file. And second of all, that chaos ensued when Jonathan Dennis of the Conservatives was the Minister of Justice. The problem is that ministers are ultimately responsible for the work of their ministries. And he has had this file for more than 18 months. By this file, I mean the human services file. During that time, Del Graff, an independent officer of the legislature who was the child and youth advocate, was trying to get information about the death of this little girl and was denied that information. During this time, the RCMP could have been investigating the death of this child. They were denied that information. Now, it may be Sabir has inherited a huge, ridiculously sprawling ministry. It was a super ministry put together by Alison Redford and handed to Dave Hancock because he he was you know a big grown up minister with lots of experience but even and the then idea there was were that, associate ministers and, for different parts of the portfolio yeah and even then Dave Hancock let's remember was the minister during our fatal care investigation who made the terrible public relations faux pas of telling me in a question in a scrum in front of a bunch of other reporters that the differential between the number of children who had died in 
care, and the number that we hadn't been told about was statistically insignificant. Given that the difference was 41 children versus 740 children, that was not statistically insignificant, and Mr. Hancock was, after fatal care, removed from the Ministry of Human Services. It was given to Mamie Buller, who also struggled valiantly to manage a portfolio that is too big for any one man. Irfan Sabir is not a strong minister. He is in over his head. He has been in over his head for 18 months. I'm not calling for him to resign because of this specific incident, but there are other people in that NDP caucus who I think could handle this portfolio better, and I think the portfolio should be split because I don't think anybody, I don't think any super person could handle everything that's in that file. So am I calling for him to be fired from his job because he, he delayed by uh, two weeks getting a report to the RCMP? Of course not. That's ridiculous. I think the kindest thing to do would be to divide that portfolio, shuffle his responsibilities elsewhere, and give them to people because there's bench strength in that caucus. Uh, it's full of social workers. It's full of people who understand this portfolio in a way that this minister clearly does not. And I agree. In terms of that super ministry, this was created for Dave Hancock under the PC government. It is gigantic, and it is amazingly complex. Um, but getting back to Irfan Sabir, of course, the, the day after your column broke and after you chased him down the hallways, Emma, the, the following morning there's a news conference. And he's there to say, look, I've done a good job. I've done nothing wrong. I'm going to uh, call now a ministerial all-party panel. A panel, not a committee. Not a committee, exactly. And it'll be a closed-door panel. It won't be public. Uh, this will be all-party. Well, probably, maybe. They've got to make that decision well, yet, Well, yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. except the fact that it sounds like it's going to be behind closed doors. But the opposition kind of caught in this um, – it'll be put in a corner where if they say they won't take part in this panel – then they appear to be then not taking seriously yeah, the issue like they of don't children care. care. Exactly. Mm. But if they do take part, then all of a sudden, then they can become part of the, I wouldn't call it a cover-up, but this idea of, as uh, Sabir was saying yesterday, I'm not here to lay blame on anybody. <laughs> I'm here to find solutions. Yes. So let, let's, let's all move forward from here. Over and we, over again. We have had years of finding solutions. Every time this becomes a flashpoint, a committee is appointed, reviews are done. The last committee appointed to review child deaths by, by the Progressive Conservatives compiled the list of recommendations. They're all available there. There is absolutely no need for another review. The government has documentation that clearly outlines what needs to change. They have to take action and do it. I'm fine with some kind of committee overseeing this so that this remains a priority of the legislature when it is not always on the front page of the paper, because that seems to be what happens here. When it's on the front page of the paper, it is a crisis, there are reviews, people, things are happening. But if it falls off the front page, if Paula is not writing about it every second week, then it's suddenly all of those, all of that action, the machine seems to freeze. And so... I think that they don't need more reviews and more panels because this isn't a partisan issue. It's not a conservative or an NDP issue. It's a fix-the-system issue. And all of the recommendations, they haven't been, from my recollection of it, they're not politically motivated. They're no, common I mean, sense, well, maybe not common sense, but they're practical solutions. No, I mean, three years ago, in the wake of fatal care, I guess maybe it's not even three years ago, two years in a, two years in a good chunk ago, they, they struck a committee 
to look into the child death review process. The, the committee was chaired by Tim Richter, to whom I spoke this week. They had lots of good recommendations. They've never been acted upon. And Richter, who's, you know, the, the head of the Coalition to End Homelessness, he's what you would call, you know, an NDP He's not, I don't know that he's an official NDP supporter, but that's, you know, ideologically the camp in which he resides, told me he's very disappointed in the way that Rachel Notley has handled this file. And he said to me, we do not need another committee. Now, I mean, the irony is um, uh, yesterday, Minister Sabir said that they were going to review the child death review system uh, and not before times because, I mean, I remember back when we did fatal care, Karen Cleese uh, Researched and 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 we you know we had graphic designer do this chart of how the the child review system works. It looks like a snakes and ladders game. It's the most ridiculously convoluted flowchart. I mean, this is not an ideological thing. Just streamline it. Give someone responsibility for it. But at the time, uh, there were all these fights between justice and human services and and the Department of Health about who should be responsible, who should be the lead agency. I mean, this has got nothing to do with left wing and right wing. This has to do with bureaucrats protecting their turf. And it has got to stop. That's the thing, isn't it? Because you've got people who just don't want to take responsibility. They don't want to be held accountable for their actions. And I put this to the minister and I said to him... It sounds as though, because he doesn't want to cast blame on anybody, as he said at least 20 times during that press conference, is he okay then with the fact that people who are caring for children and those children have died under their care, is he totally and utterly fine with them still being, you know, in charge of, of children? And he just repeated, I'm not here to, to cast blame. Yeah, I think it's no, an example. No, but I would like somebody to cast some blame. Let's well, cast still, some blame. Well, he kept saying, I, I take responsibility. And then let's move on from here. Well, taking responsibility means, in a sense, maybe... Maybe resigning, doing something. Somebody has to take responsibility, not just say I'm taking responsibility. If I, God forbid, hit someone with my car tonight and run them over and said, okay, I take responsibility, but I'll see you guys later. Yeah. Um, if you're responsible, there is a, a price to pay for being responsible. But going back to the idea of the bureaucrats, this is such a huge department. And unless you get a minister like a Dave Hancock who knows the insides and outs because he's been in politics forever – the department can start running the minister as opposed and that, to the other way around. And that is completely what I've seen happening here. Back in the olden days, the idea of ministerial responsibility meant that whatever went wrong in the department, even if the minister had nothing to do with it, the honorable thing to do in the Westminster parliamentary system is as the minister, this mess happened on my watch. I take responsibility. I resign. That's that's what ministerial responsibility means. And sometimes even if you inherit a dysfunctional system from the previous government. But, but what I will never understand is the politics of how they've played this. I mean, when, I mean, I mean, when this story broke, uh, when I broke this story, all that Rachel Notley and Irfan Sabir and, and Kathleen Ganley had to do was to stand up and say, this is a tragedy. This is an outrage. This is an example of how the progressive conservative previous government, you know, failed the child ministry. Uh, we're going to we're going to we're going to fix it. Why weren't they the ones saying that? I, I do not understand. I mean, what what are they trying to protect? They weren't the government where these mistakes happened, but they are making themselves look like the bad guys when that was completely unnecessary. Why didn't they take ownership of this file at the very beginning? Why did they leave this to the wild rose to be positioned as the champions of our children? I, I, I do not understand what the political calculation was, you know, in Brian Topp's mind 
for, for Rachel Notley to go out there and say, this is troubling. This is very troubling. Yeah, they do sound like the old PC government. And this is an issue that is in the wheelhouse of the NDP. This, this should be the, the, their yeah, big issue. Yeah, it's their file. That they're all about, and they have been for years, for decades. You go back to uh, Notley, uh, her father was all about the little guy, the little farmer, the, you know, the, protecting the little guy, the, the, the worker, uh, the even little businessman. This is a government that defends the little people, consumers, whatever. And you get the littlest people, basically, of all the children um, have, have been let down by this government, so it's driving the NDP a little nutty watching Brian, Jean, and the Wild Rose lecture them on how to deal with helping the most vulnerable uh, in, in society. And you're right, Paul, I don't understand the, the mechanics of this. And they keep saying, look, we've done nothing wrong. Uh, you know, uh, Sabir will not be resigning. Um, they say, you know, we're not guilty of anything, but that news conference yesterday, they look guilty. When they bring out that one page of this, uh, the, the uh, double, well, I guess double-sided page of the mandate, the terms of reference for this ministerial panel, it, it was rushed. This was not something done over time. And the opposition said yesterday they knew nothing about this until the news conference was called to announce an all-party panel. So this government, it seems, was rushing out the response overnight after Paula's column ran. Wait, I mean, they gave me the interview. I mean, it's not like I sandbagged them. They were all on the phone with the press secretaries when I was yelling. I mean, I actually lost my temper and was yelling at the minister, yelling, yesterday? Yesterday? What did they think was going to be in the lead of my column? I assume she was talking to her brother, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, sure, it, it is the tone of voice that one uses with one's husband when he forgets to pay the utility bill. Not that my husband would ever do such a thing because he's and, had the tone of voice. Before. I mean, but I mean that's true. I mean, I used I used my disciplining my husband voice to yell at a cabinet minister on the phone. Okay, that maybe that was unprofessional, but you'd think that might have been their first clue that this was something I might include in my column. And you'd think that having said that, having having made the tactical decision to release that information to me, they might have had a plan B not even a plan B, a plan A, to respond to what would be my inevitable reaction to this piece of news. But, I mean, the real problem is that this is a minister who cannot talk to the press, cannot give a coherent interview, cannot acquit himself well in question period. He may be the nicest of men, and he may have the best of intentions, but he's a poor politician. And, you know, I remember, I mean, I'm, I'm remembering back when Janice Tarchuk was Minister of Children's Services, she had no, she was one of the coolest cucumbers. I mean, nothing ever seemed to phase her. And when she would get up in the house and talk about dead children, she looked like she was discussing an itemized budget line item. And it sunk her as minister because she did not look like she cared. When you're the Minister of Children's Services, you have to project an attitude that you care when children die and that you're not more interested in covering the bottoms of your department ministers, of your of your deputy ministers and your senior administrators. Yeah, I feel like watching this from a little further away that I took, I was listening to what Sarah Hoffman was saying yesterday in response to some of these questions calling for his resignation and she kept saying, well, we don't want a minister who just flips up his desk and walks away and gives up. And that is true. If, and I don't know this, if he is actually on a path to getting something done and changed on this, well, then it's true. I would not want to see him walk away from that if they are legitimately in process of fixing something. Because in the back of my mind of all this story about serenity is the fact that 
this is a story that we know about and it, we started to know a little bit about it because of the child advocates work there are many other cases and i wonder what the details of all those are and i'm very troubled by that and how are we going to find out how their cases have been handled have the reports been done appropriately have the rcmp where needed been appropriately investigating do they have all the information they want and that's what i want to know if, if with these uh, with other cases if the system is is working or if there are similar problems with those so i'm of two minds about it if he has not if they've made no progress on this file well then, yes, now wouldn't be a bad time to switch ministers. Okay, I just, I've got to move along because we've got some other things to talk about today. I know this is a very passionate topic, uh, as the speaker says to every single MLA every day once it devolves into yelling and question period. I just want to move along to the economy. We had a bunch of economists actually rocked up to Edmonton uh, this week and basically had a good old chat with Joe Cece. One of the guys, he said, the economy, will, well, it'll be less bad. And I thought that was really apt description of Alberta's economy. So basically, <laughs> it's not going to be good, but it's going to be less bad. Hooray. So, Graham, you, you were at the press conference where, the, where these guys were. Talk to us. Yeah, happened. this was like a traveling uh, show of the top economists from the banks uh, across the country go visit finance ministers across the country. And they happened to be this week in uh, Edmonton. And they met with Joe C.C., so there's seven of them, I think, seven or eight of them. And uh, they're giving their analysis of what's going to happen next year in Alberta. And you're right. It was a, a case of things are getting better, but there's so many moving parts right now um, that things are recovering next year. We saw a report from the TD Bank that actually, the guy actually wasn't there from the TD Bank. He was sick. Uh, apparently. Well, anyway, so his report, a report from the TD in September, October, was saying that Alberta will lead the country in terms of recovery. But even then, it's because things have been so bad in Alberta that we get, you know, 2 or 3% growth next year. It's like we're coming out of the hole. We're still behind where we were a couple of years ago or a year ago. So they're saying things will get better, but there's a lot of things moving parts. Um, I asked about the, um, was, we all asked about the, the carbon tax, you know, what impact will that have? And they were kind of dancing around that saying, well, it's sort of the way the world is headed these days. Alberta's doing a made in Alberta carbon tax to keep the money in Alberta. That's a good thing for reinvesting in green energy. Then about the pipelines, um, you know, Notley's hoping to get the pipeline under construction, the Kinder Morgan, by within a year. So they're saying that that will help investment in oil sands. The big issue right now is investment in oil sands. We saw a story today saying that oil sands companies are, are looking at, at, at long-term growth. So next year will be not as bad, but it'll get better in the years, we think, after that, 2018, 2019. Unless you ask Brian Jean. Well, or anyone from the Wild Rose. They do not think that's true, Graham. Yeah. The thing is, it's interesting because the, the Wild Rose, um, to them, in a, in a way, perversely, the worse things are in Alberta, the better for them. Because if we saw the price of oil recover, if we saw a pipeline being built and all of a sudden the economy has to recover, that's good news for the NDP. That's bad news for the opposition. So the opposition does play the sort of game where they say they want the best for Alberta. But politically, if things are going badly that plays into their wheelhouse. It was St. Saint Augustine who said, you know, God, please make me celibate, but not yet. Um, <laughs> so I think Brian, Brian Jean is like, you know, God, please make Alberta prosperous, but not yet. Yeah, I, I, I saw that news about the less bad, and I just thought, well, I'm not, so, I'll believe it when I see it, I guess, is, is part of it. I, I don't know quite what Albertans are supposed to do with that information. I know that people in Calgary, it continues to be terrible down there. And I am very concerned that in Edmonton, that despite 
the fact that we have been somewhat buffered and shielded that we are about to feel the squeeze more so with some of the uh, development and the the construction that's been happening here starting to taper up and wind down like i said i'll believe when i see it i don't know what we're supposed to do with that information exactly no it was interesting janet reappel the head of the edmonton chamber of commerce was at city council this week cautioning exactly that sarah saying you know that the city budget has to be mindful of the fact that we we may now finally next year be feeling the full impact of of what hit calgary last year but but i don't know i mean this may be a cross-current thing because if oil prices continue to rise slightly and to stabilize and if people start to think okay maybe the united states is a tricky place to invest right now maybe we want to put our capital someplace um that looks more stable maybe we do see recovery. Synovas, they, they announced this week that they're planning to restart a project that they mothballed up in uh, up in the Fort McMurray area. So that is positive news. Uh, that's been sitting idle for a couple years now. So maybe. Glimmers of hope, but you know. Also the carbon tax kicks in January 1, which is Wild Rose's big argument as to why things will not get better because they're just going to get worse because you'll have to pay more for everything. But of course, but then the government keeps saying that you know uh, more than half the people that will be affected will get checks starting in Mm-hmm. January. See, they'll, people will get checks before they actually start seeing that uh, impact on their monthly uh, bills. And just very briefly, I just want to uh, touch on the rally last weekend that was at the legislative building. Sarah's already oh, rolling her eyes at that. <laughs> God, it seems like so long ago, <laughs> doesn't it? So, yeah. so, of course, there was uh, there were a few uh, interesting signs there that uh, did seem to be a little homophobic. There was a chant about uh, lock her up in regards to Notley. This and, is and, and the Lugan, the Lugan Press sign, which is uh, which was the one that actually disturbed me the most. That was Nazi code for the lying Jewish press. And when I see people out in front of the legislature with a sign that says Lugan Press, um, it's a it's a term that we saw at some of the neo-Nazi rallies in support of Donald Trump. Some of the Breibert, uh, that's Breibert rhetoric. Um, very disturbing to see that here as well. Brian G did cop a bit of flack over this because uh, he was actually he was obviously at the rally. He gave a speech there. He left. Uh, he says before any of this kicked off, any of the uh, lock up chance. He said he didn't see any of the signs, but was told about them later. It did hit, get him into some hot water politically. Do you think anyone think this will have any long term effect? He's kind of said no, again that so. he's denounced it and the he denounces is, it every time. I it don't happens. think it'll have any effect no, on Brian Jean. Well, think, no, on I, Chris I, Alexander, I, maybe. Well, yeah, because he was actually speaking when they began chanting lock her up. I was at the rally, for not, not the whole thing. I was a bit like uh, Jean. I, I actually was at my office doing other work. I went in, saw the, went to my office, came out, saw the rally, went back in, came out a few times. I wasn't there for the entire like, hour and a half, whatever. And I didn't see the signs. So they weren't there all the time. And I wasn't there for the chant. Cause it wasn't as if they were chanting for an hour and a half, lock her up. It was only very very briefly. And there were signs popped up now and again. I didn't see those particular signs, but I saw the photographs of them, so they do exist. Although, uh, I mean, certainly uh, the rebel media people and even some of Gene's people were saying to me, those were NDP operatives, those yeah. were NDP plants with the signs. And prove it. Yeah, I mean. You know, um, there was a tweet from uh, Ezra Levant who actually planned this uh, event. He said, you know, um, $500 uh, bounty for the, for the names, identities of these, these two NDP activists holding these signs up. Well, he doesn't know they're NDP activists. But I think if you really want to know their names, then just say a reward for their identities. Leave it at that if you think they were a plant. But he was, of course, pointing to the NDP. But this is Ezra Levant. This rally was, was organized by the rebel. And this goes back, you know, I remember back in February, there was that with a big debate here about the rebel was kicked out of a um, 
a news conference. Their agent was kicked out of a news conference by the premier's staff because um, the premier's staff deemed the rebel not to be a legitimate news organization. Well, they've proven they're not a legitimate news organization. You don't cover Notley's government and then hold a rally to attack Notley's government. Although I want to say, because some people have been saying, oh, see, Graham and Paula, you defended Ezra and see where this gets you. I would like to remind people that when the NDP uh, press secretary refused to let the rebel in, her reasons were twofold. One, she said, oh, they publish opinion and not just facts. And two, they don't have a print publication. Those are the wrong reasons. I mean, because I publish opinion. Graham publishes opinion. Last we, time I look global on CTV, don't uh, have yeah. a print publication. No, I mean, uh, well, you know, or Vice or, you know, Dave Cornoyer's Dave Berta blog. I mean, the, the, the litmus test isn't do you have a dead tree product or do you have opinions? The litmus test is are you an agent provocateur activist? That's not what the NDP said. So, of course, I, I defended not Ezra Levant. I defended the principle that media organizations that aren't printed and that people who write opinion are journalists. Um, I still stand by those arguments. Uh, but I think, you know, Graham wrote a column this week in which he said, you know, that's it for the rebel now. I mean, they, they cannot possibly be expected to be taken seriously as a media organization anymore. And I think maybe, in fact, that is Ezra's game plan because now he'll be have great fruit for martyrdom because when he is probably legitimately kept out of the next press conference, he'll be able to, you know, to to again claim that he's the victim. And I think that's probably at least as much the motivation of what happened at that rally as anything else. It certainly detracted from the main point that I think many of the people there were trying to make, which was that they are concerned about the carbon tax. And while I may personally believe that a carbon tax is a right and just thing to do, uh, I understand why some people don't think that. And I absolutely think that the right to protest that is absolutely fair game. So it's been... uh, it is a shame that that got completely yeah. lost in the entire... And, and I've been trying to yeah. remind myself the original purpose, but at the same time, I'm not uh, downplaying the other comments that were made, which were, you know, ridiculous and uh, horrible and inappropriate. So Yeah, and Chris Alexander, who's, a, of course, a federal conservative leadership candidate, made himself look like an idiot by standing on the steps. And when the chant started, uh, smiling sort of uh, bashfully and conducting with his fingers like he was an orchestra conductor. Afterwards, he said, you know, I was just smiling because it was very awkward. I, I didn't know how to make them stop. The fact that he was holding a microphone in his hand at the time and might have might have used that really cool <laughs> invention to say, now, now... What we really mean is vote her out. Um, but Play nice, everybody. Okay, from that, it's been a long podcast. I just want to move quickly to good stuff from the gallery. Sarah, do you have something for us today? Yeah, I'm going to recommend a column that appeared in the Ottawa Citizen by Terry Glavin uh, that appears in the, under the online headline, Breaking that electoral reform promise is dangerous in an unstable world, liberals. It's about uh, the whole issue of electoral reform and the mess that is happening on that file in Ottawa, it's about 1,200 words. I was I wanted to put it in our print edition, but just uh, didn't quite have space for a 1,200-word piece. So read it online. It's good. Yes, Paula? I'm going to recommend something a little outside the box, which it was uh, a piece that our colleague Tristan Hopper wrote uh, for the Journal and the National Post about the Grand Prairie Dinosaur Museum, the Phil Curry Museum, and how it was opened with great expectations and, in fact, has had great success in the terms of people coming to see it, but it it had no business plan for its future operation. And so it's quite a sardonic piece about uh, a fine idea run off the rails. I am 
going to recommend nothing political. It's just a super sweet story. Wait for it and you'll see where I'm going here. 450 kilograms of sugar transformed in Western Australian artist's Wonka-esque installation. It's a little really, really sweet ha-ha-ha story about a Western Australian artist who got a whole ton of sugar, made it look like uh, Willy Wonka and anime had a baby on acid. It is quite something and we should all go and have a look at this beautiful very sweet little installation i would love to go and check that in out. this weather i wouldn't mind going to western australia right now <laughs> graham um it's that season to buy books for people at christmas time <laughs> you and books you love them yeah i i read the occasional <laughs> book this is from our our colleague uh, don braid he wrote a book it came out last month uh, notley nation and he and his yeah. wife sydney uh, Sharp wrote the book. So it's a good analysis of what actually happened, it's sort of a record of what is, what's happening in Alberta politics. So if you want to get read more on Alberta politics over Christmas, it's called Notley Nation. The book is on sale, and it's a good book. Right. My family can feel free to add that one to my <laughs> stocking. See, Mr. Godfrey, we three panelists all chose a post-media uh, product to endorse. So, well, go us. I went for sugar, but anyway. <laughs> um Sarah, Paula, Graham, thank you for joining me. And David Bloom, thank you so much for filming uh, some of this to put on edmontonjournal.com along with the podcast. And all of our past podcasts will be up there as well. As well, you can um, grab this on uh, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and our SoundCloud channel. Join us again this time next week for the Press Gallery.